Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very happy today to welcome Jeremy Lent to the podcast. Jeremy's a British author whose writings investigate the patterns of thought that have led civilization to its current crisis of sustainability. He is the founder of the non-profit Leology Institute, which is dedicated to a worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably. He's the author of The Patterning Instinct and Requiem of the Human Soul. Well, so thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, great. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Fergal. A, a good place to start, maybe, if you could just talk a little bit about your background and the Leology Institute. I mean, I came across your recent book and The Patterning Instinct, but it, maybe just talk a little bit, you know, the journey you've been on. Sure. Yeah, absolutely, Fergal. I actually was born in England, was educated and grew up in England, went to Cambridge, and then I left England and I spent most of my life actually in the United States. And um, just in, in simple terms, you can sort of um, break my life into kind of two halves, if you will, because my first half of my life was actually spent in business. I got an MBA at the University of Chicago, <laughs> the absolute center, as, as I'm sure you know, for, you know, uh, um, Milton Friedman style monetarism, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I, I um, went into consulting and I ended up starting my own Internet company during that first Internet phase back in the 1990s. Um, it, was a, it was actually a company that was the first ever to allow people to apply for credit cards online and get approved in real time. It, it was a success and I actually ended up taking the company public. And then um, things started to sort of uh, turn very different for me in my life. My wife at the time, she passed away some years back. She got very sick. I left the company to look after her um, left the company really before the time was ready. I was CEO at the time, and uh, and within a few years, it actually collapsed and uh, went under. And my wife um, sadly went through cognitive decline, so I kind of really lost um, her. And I went through this place in my life where I was really asking myself, where does meaning come from? Like I wanted to, I realized I had this opportunity to um, move my life in a whatever direction I chose, but I wanted it to be really meaningful. And then ever since then, this was well over 10 years ago, um, I spent the time really trying to understand the source of that meaning. Uh, a part of that was to look at the different ways in which cultures um, all through history have patterned meaning into the universe. Because I wanted to uh, really get a sense of um, not just take for granted ideas that we have right now. And that led to me writing this book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, which really does look at the different ways in which cultures, all the way from earliest times of uh, hunter-gatherers, have made meaning out of the world. And perhaps most importantly for this podcast, it looks at the underlying values of our modern civilization, where those come from, where the worldview that we hold actually comes from, which is quite fascinating, and also begins to hint at some of the unsustainable areas that we are in right now. Um, so actually, it was actually as I was doing this research on this book um, that I really began to see that because our own worldview 
has these unsustainable elements to it, is leading to these imbalances, there's an opportunity for a different kind of worldview, one that's based more on connection, that can lead to really more of a harmonious form of existing on the earth. And that is um, underlying this uh, Leology Institute that I founded some years back, which is really designed to offer a framework for a more sustainable worldview for long-term flourishing on the earth. And um, actually, my current writing is about those themes. So right now, I see myself really as an author and an integrator, trying to integrate different aspects of history and philosophy and our lives into um, a more fulfilling, so essentially a more integrated worldview. I'd, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about the, uh, the patterning instinct um, later. Um, what, what would be useful maybe is you, you touched on this question of sustainability and unsustainability. I mean, how are we doing? I mean, I know uh, Stephen Pinker just published a book um, that uh, has has been, well, lauded mostly, um, but uh, has, has some critics as well that, we're, you know, we're doing very well in, in you know, in, in relative terms over, you know, compared to where we were and, you know, in terms of getting rid of disease and war and so forth. And things like that. Uh, how, how do you think we're getting on? I mean, and, and what are, what's on your mind? What are, are a few of the, the biggest concerns that you have from the perspective of sustainability, at least? You know, there's, there's sort of two big themes, I think, that you just brought up. One has to do with sustainability. One has to do with progress. So, so certainly Stephen Pinker's notion that he has been publicizing a lot is this idea that um, we're on this incredible path of progress and uh, all these people, like he really, really has it in for uh, people who focus on the environment who um, he thinks are just missing the really big picture. And he's a big supporter of uh, the sort of techno-utopian type people who think that things can go just really great um, if we just invest more in technology, which I see as more of a neoliberal sort of technocratic approach to things. And um, as I read his book, I got really quite angry because even though I've actually um, really agree with a lot of what Stephen Pinker says about progress and his earlier book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, I thought was was profound and really important because it shows how there has been significant moral progress in history. But where I part company from him significantly is he makes a big point in his most recent book of tying progress in with uh, essentially the capitalist model of the last few hundred years. And he essentially really conflates the two. So the underlying message of his book, and in fact, the overriding message of his book, he's pretty explicit about it, is we have progress um, because of enlightenment values and because those enlightenment values led to the capitalist global economy. And we should be so glad for that. And people who disagree with that are just missing the boat. So I wrote this article actually called Stephen Pinker's Ideas About Progress are Fatally Flawed. Um, these eight graphs show why. And I, I focused on the graphs because a lot of what he does is he tries to sort of overwhelm the reader with so much data that you just can't disagree. In the end, you go, well, I guess he must be right. Actually, well, the reason for my anger was this recognition that he, I think he seems to be deliberately missing things that don't fit in with 
his uh, worldview he's trying to offer. And I think honestly doing it in a manipulative and cynical fashion. Um, and what I try to show in my graphs is kind of extricate the progress from neoliberal capitalism. And I agree that we have as a world, at least the human race, has enjoyed substantial progress in moral um, values and also in the quality of life, material quality of life overall over the last millennium and the f and last few hundred years. But I think there's two key points. One is the reason for that progress is not, in my view, the capitalist system. Um, it's actually the rise of scientific thought and enlightenment values, which I think are different from what Steven Pinker shows. And they're also as a result of people caring about what is wrong in each generation and putting literally their lives on the line to make things better. And I think that's the issue that I think Steven Pinker is um, so wrong on. He just misses that. Um, but the other thing that's so important is that this whole idea of progress is very selective. And in fact, if we look at uh, what is really going on right now, we see a whole other sort of version of events, the whole issue of overshoot and the issue of progress for whom, the fact that in fact it's incredibly, like the rise in, in inequality and is, has led to a disastrous experience for the really the bulk of people on the earth right now. And in fact, what we find is that if we want to enjoy any positive progression into the future, we have to change the economic model the world is based on right now. And I believe have to change some of our underlying values as a global civilization. Right. Now, you've covered a lot of ground there. Very interesting. Just coming back to the sustainability question, what are the few things? I mean, as you say, you look around, you've got every day in the newspaper, there's you know more ice that's been melting on the Antarctic or different glaciers. You've got biodiversity. We've got, you know, supposedly extinction. We've got climate change. We've got various major uh, and traumatic concerns. Are there a couple that are on your mind in particular? Yes. I mean, I, I think without doubt... Of course, you know, the, the climate breakdown is what's on everyone's mind. And that is clearly at the, at the current rate is so extreme that I think there's a very, very good question as to whether uh, path we're on right now is um, really consistent with having a, a, a maintaining civilization this century. I think it's as extreme as that. And that, you know, that recent PNAS article about hothouse Earth, it was called the trajectories of the Earth system in the Anthropocene. That's um, really brought to light some of these key underlying issues that and even if we keep global warming to that two degrees that was never really established by scientists as a safe limit, but was just kind of a number that got politically acceptable. Um, that actually in itself could lead to positive feedback effects that could lead to unsustainable climate change into the future. You know, we're already seeing our civilization begin to show the uh, sort of cracks in the system uh, with just one degree Celsius. So I think that's a massive problem. But, you know, even beyond that, I'm glad when I see people focusing on climate change because it's this absolute existential risk to our civilization. But there's so many other underlying massive problems beyond it that we're barely even aware of. And we're looking at things like deforestation, um, a massive crisis of potable water. Um, we're looking at things like the fact that at the current rates of topsoil overuse, we 
maybe only have 60 harvests left, according to a United Nations study. And it goes on and on, the sixth extinction of species. Um, the oceans are basically, um, 90% of some of the major fish in the oceans have, have disappeared. And we're essentially using the earth up at a, it's an incredibly unsustainable rate. Um, so I think we have to look at some of the underlying reasons for this and um, and shift where we're going. Yes, yes. You touched on uh, interestingly at the beginning. You, you you were talking about the capitalist system and you talked about the Anthropocene. Is it the capitalocene as far as you're concerned? I mean, you've uh, highlighted, I think, in your the recent writings the issues associated with capitalism and the problem. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that? Yeah, I I do think that. In our current global system, the gigantic transnational corporations are the ones that we have to recognize are um, a major fundamental driver of our sort of unsustainable path that we're on right now. And I'm not sure, honestly, that I'd call it the capitalist scene, even though I know everyone's trying to come up with a new version of uh, the something or scene. But I, I do think the Anthropocene is, is probably a good way of looking at things because, you know, as I really research in detail in my book, The Patterning Instinct, we do see certain unsustainable trajectories that have gone on ever since humans really evolved as a species. And I mean, even when we were hunter-gatherers, as soon as we got into a new continent, within a couple of thousand years, um, there, there'd be this major um, extinction of megafauna in each continent. Because basically, as humans, we have more power than we know what to do with over the rest of the natural world. So there is this big, this larger arc. But in recent times, what I have really observed I, certainly in the last century, um, is that the not just the rise of global capitalism, but the, tr the rise in recent decades of the transnational corporations ha has really infiltrated every aspect of life. So it's gotten to the point where it's hard to believe, but 69 of the top 100 economies in the world today are actually uh, corporations rather than countries. And, you know, we see their effect in just every aspect of life. So as just as infants just grow into their culture, um, the uh, global advertising, the um, uh, sort of corporate driven media that they have that uh, they are inundated with shape their values shape their lives and really and um, turns them from being um, primarily human beings into primarily consumers um, in order to maintain the growth in corporate earnings basically yes, yes yes i'd be interested to talk to you a little later about your views on the corporations and indeed finance and uh, so forth um but a, a key interest of yours clearly jeremy is this question of uh, culture and values what, in your view, are the underlying values that have, do you think, that have given rise to global capitalism and its more extreme market fundamentalism that we've seen in the last 30 years? Well, what's interesting is I think if you look at deeper layers, we see core fundamental values that we just take for granted in our world, a lot of them coming from the rise in the of the scientific revolution in the 17th century or so, when philosophers started to look at this notion of 
um, conquering nature as being this ultimate good and um, recognizing, sort of seeing nature as a machine that if we can sort of take it apart, um, then we can uh, just make life better and better for human beings. And even underlying those ideas, this notion of humans as being basically separate from nature um, and this idea that it's actually that humans are fundamentally selfish and that it's actually good that they're selfish, that this um, kind of reinterpretation of Adam Smith, because it wasn't his initial ideas, but um, this modern interpretation is that you know, one is that humans are very individual, that we, can be, we sort of need to define ourselves as individuals rather than within community. And two, that as individuals, um, we're fundamentally selfish. That's a good thing because when all humans act rationally on their selfishness, this makes for a more efficient economy and it makes for a better world for all. And these are just, these are myths essentially um, created by, um, you know, people in the 17th century doing their best to make sense of things, reacting against millennia of um, theology and uh, Christendom or whatever. But their ideas have been superseded by science in um, in over the last few centuries and certainly last few decades, and yet those myths are what we um, take for granted in the way we make sense of the world, and those myths are actually propagated to a large extent by the corporations because they help to buttress this kind of underlying philosophy of uh, neoliberal capitalism. That yeah, because we're selfish, because because um, life works better when we all uh, pursue our own gains, the re really the role of government should be to let corporations uh, just make as much money as possible um, and make the markets as efficient as possible. Yes, efficient um, markets. That's a, another question, I guess, another contradiction or myth as well. Um, you, you talked about science there. Clearly, science has brought us great things. What happened, though, is, is, you know, as a tool and indeed various aspects of, you could say, the you know, Industrial Revolution or, you know, being able to divide and split by the Fordist revolution of, you know, breaking tasks down and things. They have produced great wealth and in certain, you know, political circumstances have uh, not had problems of equality indeed, you know, after the Second World War and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between those? It's true. And... Um that's something I like to emphasize because sometimes um, I get so focused on the negative aspects of some of the modern trends in our global worldview um, that people misinterpret and think that I'm sort of attacking these sort of um, some of the other fundamental elements of our worldview, which is so good. And I think we can be so grateful for science and for technology and the amazing benefits that it's that it's brought. And that's where I really agree with, for example, Stephen Pinker's analysis of progress. And along with that, scientific worldview also has come with some wonderful notions of expanding humanity's sense of, of community, you know, from not just being within our sort of tribal identity, but the, uh, some of these ideas, the concept of freedom and liberty um, applying to all of humanity came out of that same uh, scientific revolution of thoughts, which led to the Enlightenment. So that is absolutely true. And so what I try to identify in my book is more that we've what we're looking at now is an imbalance, that the worldview that breaks things down 
and um, yeah, sometimes called the reductionist approach to science that has done so much to enhance our technology and enhance humans' power over the world has led to this massive imbalance with the natural world and also massive imbalance um, within our uh, societies leading to these incredible inequities where right now, for example, the six wealthiest men in the world own as much wealth as the entire lower half of the world's population. Just unbelievable. Now, yes, it's very interesting. And while I, I understand, I think, you know, this reductionist idea and what you're talking about and the deep rooted aspects that this has, this philosophy and how that's played out. But I guess if you're looking for a simple solution, maybe there isn't one, but you're trying to find one in some sense, we would have to look really, I think, to the last 30 years. And I'm just wondering what happened in our values and our culture that allowed the corporations, to, that allowed this idea of globalization, that allowed this idea of profit maximization, that allowed this idea of footloose capital, you know, if we're looking at just that, that aspect of it. Yes, well, I do think that we need to look at the sources of this last few decades as being that rise in neoliberal thinking that came um, that you know became popularized with Margaret Thatcher and Reagan. And of course, you know, before then you had these sort of ideas of people like Hayek coming from the um, the sort of Mont Pelerin society, like this group of people back in the as early as the 40s and 50s and 60s, who put together this um, alternative worldview and managed to invest enough money and do it systematically enough that essentially it's taken over the thinking of the world. I mean, it was one of the great successes of a sort of a worldview coup, if you will, in all of history. Why was it ripe? You know, because as you say, it, it has been very successful. It's only now really, and well, to whatever degree it is that, you know, there's some questions at, at various levels as we see financial bubbles, degradation of the environment and issues like that, and the degrowth thinkers and things are more fundamental, you know, questioning. But it is an idea that took hold and obviously very seductive. Yes, and I think that really one um, simple element is that uh, it was the result of a small group of people, you know, applying a very clear mythology um, and funding it hugely and doing so systematically so that um, when they had the opportunity to essentially infiltrate governments in the West, they were able to do so. And and then really like uh, use these massive funds they accrued to take over the media so that now um, in the United States in particular, um, most of the media is, it, yeah, it's either controlled, I mean, even the media that we see as more sort of, quote, independent and, you know, not supporting this kind of Trump regime in, in Washington is still controlled by gigantic corporations and almost never mentions the you know, climate breakdown we're looking at, almost never mentions um, the role of the corporations in, in fact, I'd say never mentions the role of corporations in this because they are the mouthpiece of corporations. So it's like a sort of choice in the US right now is between the extreme right wing uh, supporting this kind of Trump regime of a complete breakdown of all prior norms for uh, essentially nothing than uh, a kleptocratic takeover of the country on the one hand. And on the other hand, a mainstream media, which is dominated by massive corporations that wants to essentially keep a more balanced takeover of the world by the gigantic transnational corporations, but in the sort of form of uh, slightly more 
uh, of a sense that could be um, bought into by <clears throat> by a broader swath of people. But you say very, very little um, uh, conversation about what's really needed, which is a transformation of our way of thinking, a transformation of our economic system. Yes, absolutely. And I'd like to talk to you about your ideas and that. Just last question would be, about, again, because your interest in the cultural side of things, what, what is your sense of the, the cultural roots of this particular you know, neoliberal turn? What's interesting in my book is that I sort of go deeper and deeper into these layers. So you can sort of... that. I wish there was a really crisp answer to your question, but in a way it kind of, it goes layer by layer. So most recently we see this like takeover of essentially of common thinking by consumerist ideology, which really started at the beginning of the 20th century in the United States. Then prior to that, you have this layer of this kind of belief in humans as being separate from nature, separate from each other, and the right of Europeans essentially to conquer the world, to conquer nature and to conquer other countries. But then you can even peel the layers further and go behind that and look at the Christian uh, worldview that um, was based on this, what's called dualism, this sense of the separation of the soul and the body and the separation of humans from nature and the sort of source of value being up in them sort of in the heavens and God rather than in actually in the earth. And you can even find that going all the way back to the ancient Greeks. So even though I'm not, I'm not accusing the ancient Greeks of, uh, uh, of causing our current society. Um, it is fascinating to look back and see some of the roots of these senses of separations coming from them. Um, and I do think that diagnosis is, is valuable. It sounds very kind of academic and um, sort of arcane, if you will. But the reason it's valuable is it leads us to recognize what we can do to turn things around, which is um, if our fundamental issues are around separation, a sense of separation of humans from nature, humans from each other, even separation within ourselves, then the real turnaround comes from focusing on connection on connection with each other, connecting within our own, with our own values, within ourselves, connecting with community, and realizing that we all as humans are connected in a, in a sort of a global sisterhood and brotherhood, and then fundamentally connecting with the earth, realizing we're not separate from nature. We actually are nature. And it's only when the earth is actually flourishing that we humans can really flourish for the long term. That's a beautiful vision, um, Jeremy. And in the, the, the great scope of time that you've explored in your, your book, um, what is your sense of how change happens? <laughs> That's a big question. I'm sure well, that is a about. great question. Yeah, thank you for answering that, I, for, for asking that. I, I do think that is core. And what I discovered really in, in my book is that, um, you know, worldviews, can be incredibly sticky. Um, I mean, they can last for millennia. Uh, they have this real power of, you know, um, as, as kids grow up, each new generation, they form this worldview from their parents and the world around them, and they believe in it fundamentally. So what? how do worldviews change? And what I see happening is it's only when there is some significant um, either endogenous or exogenous variable that changes substantially that can lead new generations to really question the values of prior generations. So we saw when we saw the worldview changing with the scientific revolution 
in the 17th century, um, that was an endogenous variable of this kind of shift of ways of thinking that was that led to a new way of understanding the world that was incompatible with what was um, pre previously there. But then if you look at another example, if you look at China, which had this very um, sustainable uh, traditional worldview that was one based on a sense of connectivity, a sense of everything being connected in the web of life. And what's so fascinating is you see that worldview shifting um, when there was this dramatic um, a sort of earthquake, if you will, of the uh, the West with their different worldview coming in and humiliating the leadership in China um, for decades and decades and decades until new generations arose and said, we've got to throw out this worldview that was rotten. And essentially, they've, they incorporated Western worldviews in one way or another, either in uh, the form of communism or more recently in the form of, ca of capitalism. So, we all, we see worldviews change when something significant causes an unraveling of the old worldview. And that's actually, believe it or not, where I see hope right now. Because even as we're looking at this, uh, this, this move towards disaster in our climate breakdown and all of the other unsustainable paths we're on, we're seeing new generation of people um, as they're looking at things, saying, this is unacceptable, you know, and the way, like, the values that have led our civilization to this world that I, as a young person, need to grow up in, I don't accept that. And I think that we're beginning to see some of the unraveling of the old ways of thinking in, um, you know, in, in younger people. The big question, and I think this is the biggest question really facing humanity is, will the, will the worldview unravel and be transformed um, first, or will our actual economic system unravel to the point of collapse before the worldview has a chance of changing it? So it's almost this race of, of what's going to unravel first, the old way of thinking or the old way of um, doing business, which could potentially lead to the collapse of our civilization, which would be really the greatest disaster ever to have occurred in all of human history. Yes, yes. You're right to emphasize the importance of civilization. Uh, the earth will continue and, um, you know, evolution of one kind or another will continue, um, presumably. But um, yes, our civilization is a uh, terrifying prospect, particularly when you think about the levels of CO2 already baked in, as it were, and where we are on that trajectory. At, yet at the same time, as you point out, there is uh, quite a bit of momentum and it does feel like a moment of potential change now you've recently written a piece with some recommendations some suggestions some things that you think would help that we things that we, we need to do can you talk about those a little bit we touched on the importance of the, the key role that growth seeking corporations have had um on on the world i before i just ask you about that i just want to say you know, corporations obviously have this power yet we are we are part of this too we are part of this we we we, we buy stuff and we buy a lot of stuff uh, particularly in the, the developed world and our pensions are in the stock market which is investing in these companies so how do you extricate us or the companies from that kind of connection 
Yes, I agree. And it's it's also everything because everything is interrelated. Um, we can't just look at one layer, if you will, of this incredibly complex system and ignore the other layers. So um, even though um, I focus a lot on corporations, but ultimately it is our underlying values that need to shift. <clears throat> but what we have to recognize is that each of us really is embedded in this system. So, um, you know, our, our kids grow up and getting indoctrinated by the media that they are exposed to, which is designed to turn them, you know, into consumers. And as we get older, we get embedded in um, a company and a family. And the way the system works right now, just in order to um, pay the rent or pay the mortgage, get our kids to school and look after our health and all those things, we have to and essentially become cogs in this gigantic corporate system. Um, and, you know, if we're lucky, um, sometimes we can feel we, we can sort of tell ourselves, well, we're doing something good in our lives while we're doing all this. But it's very, very difficult to actually extricate ourselves as an individual from this system, um, unless you're either very fortunate um, or very committed and ready to give up a lot of what we um, other um, uh, thing that we see around us that other people have access to. So that's why we do have to change some of the things systemically. We do need to change our own values. But as long as we're embedded in this in this kind of this incredibly complex system, none of us individually can necessarily do enough. But we have to, we can do things if we work together to shift some of the kind of rules of the game, if you will, some of the, um, uh, you know, the overriding politics and the underlying rules that lead us to this pace we're in right now. And I do think to understand that we have to look um, at like, what is the, what is the system based on? And very simply, if we recognize that the corporations do have this incredible power in the world right now, we have to look at the fact that corporations themselves are designed in our modern world to maximize shareholder value. And to do so, they are, they're, the whole um, intention is to keep growing. And of course, as we all know, you know, if a corporation puts out quarterly earnings and says that its growth rate might be reduced by something or other, its stock crashes right away. Um, and if the CEO makes a decision to do something that won't lead to maximizing shareholder value, um, he or she risks being sued by shareholders for doing that. Yes. So, yes. Does that mean that the real focus of attention should be investors? Because as you say, you know, uh, I can't remember what the quote during the financial crash, one of the bank CEOs said, well, you've got to keep dancing. Um, you know, the idea that it's actually the investors that um, and I know there's been research Daniel Nyberg has done on, on uh, the trajectory of corporations in Australia who started out with a sustainability uh, agenda and over time uh, dropped that. It became narrowly defined as sustainability of the corporation. And he talks, of, you know, uh, to quite some degree about the, you know, the role of key stakeholders in that. Um, yeah. So I, I'd be interested to get your views on, on the role of investors. Yes, I, I mean, investors definitely play a, a, a huge part. And even then, I think we have to look at the, again, at the underlying system that uh, drives investors as much as drives the corporations. So if you go to a corporate CEO 
um, he or she might say, well, I've got to do what I do because of investors. But if you go to investor, um, they will say something similar. I've, well, I've got to do what I've got to do. Otherwise, I'll lose my job. If I'm not trying to you know, um, maximize my returns, I'll just get kicked out. So what is the system that causes each person <clears throat> to be doing what they need to do, um, driven by some underlying, um, uh, underlying dynamic? And I think... And that's where I have suggested a few <clears throat> interim paths that even even taken together, I don't think they actually um, give us the true structural transformation our uh, civilization needs. We actually have to shift our civilization to a different kind of an um, integrated uh, network, really from um, f- fundamentally. But I do think that there are some steps which even though I just see them as incremental, they are so radical, if you will, compared to modern thinking that very few modern politicians would even kind of touch them. But to give you an idea, one um, idea I came up with is this notion of a triple bottom line uh, requirement for corporate charters. Um, I expect a lot of people who listen to this podcast are probably familiar with the idea of the triple bottom line of uh, um, companies choosing to optimize not just profits, but also people and planets. And so like social, environmental and financial outcomes. And um, you can actually charter, you know, recharter as a benefit corporation or was an alternative thing known as a B Corp. Um, And something like over 2000 corporations around the world have done so. Um, But the problem is that when you do that, you're still part of this global capitalist system. And um, if you can't show that you're still making your profits the way that people expect, uh, it's just not going to work. And, you know, companies like Unilever who have, um, you know, talked a good talk and uh, really offer good values. And Danone is another example. Um, They are still stuck having to fight again in a system that only optimizes for um, shareholder value. So the idea would be to actually establish a rule um, at the, and this would have to be a shared international role in, in the US as well as in Europe and other countries that say that corporations have to be chartered according to those three um, those three bottom lines rather than just optimizing shareholder value. So then um, if a CEO made a decision that was good for the environment or good for uh, the local community, then he or she could not be sued because he's actually they're actually pursuing some of those triple bottom lines. And along with that, I think charters should need to be renewed every five years. There's no reason why corporations should be given this perpetual charter, um, uh, especially in the United States where they have the rights of a, of a person but it's like they have to, um, they're immortal, unlike people. And essentially, they get to act like um, psychopaths, if you will, because they're just solely focused on one thing, regardless of the moral um, issues around them. But if they actually had to get their charters renewed every five years, um, everything would look different. It was, all of a sudden, corporations would start to um, essentially make decisions in different ways. So those, those are two of the um, ideas that would really change the underlying rules. The, so the, the system is still the same, it's still global capitalism, but that little tweaks, if you will, with um, very significant impact. Yes, yes. Oh, sorry. I, I, I was just going to say, just um, in response to another thing you mentioned, there is a, another idea 
that I put out there in this article, um, talking specifically about investment holding periods. And um, because to your point about investors, one of the issues is the incredible short-term orientation of investors. So, you know, and corporations know that investors can buy or sell their shares at a moment's notice. Um, and of course, with um, same-day trading, uh, <clears throat> essentially, and everything is driven by where the sort of uh, short-term money is going. So that can be changed again very simply. And it, again, it would be a radical transformation of the current system, but it would just be a tweak of the rules of simply taxing the trades based on how long they're held. So you could put a, a penalizing tax of, say, 10% if a stock is held um, less than a day. And that can be a sliding scale of, say, 5% if less than a year or 3% if less than 10 years and zero if more than 20 years. So that in mutual funds and the the big money uh, that kind of shifts around right now would have to look at the longer term plans of a company and would stop investing in, say, fossil fuel companies because they know that their, their days are numbered and would start investing more in companies that offer, say, um, green renewable energy or investing in long-term uh, sustainability of water and, and other other um, longer-term flourishing-oriented companies. Very interesting, very interesting. Now, you mentioned this question of um, a triple bottom line. I There does seem to have been some momentum here in terms of uh, increased awareness or agreement that, you know, actually, legally, uh, at least in the United States, corporations don't have to maximize profits. And, you know, this question of, you know, fiduciary role and so forth and, the, you know, the uh, special position that, you know, shareholders have in, in, in terms of, you know, getting their, the, the highest returns is actually doesn't hold in either in law or, or, or corporate economics or, or questions like that. And yet, apparently, it's the Supreme Court in Del Delaware that calls these decisions and what it says go. So, you know, what, what, do you, what is your sense? Have you thought about how this change might happen? And I mean, because this, you know, this awareness of, of the, you know, the, I guess, mythical quality of this idea of, you know, which, which every CEO says, oh, well, we've got to maximize profits and, you know, we've got this fiduciary responsibility. It's, it's not true. Yes, you're, you're completely right. It's not true according to the actual letter of the law in the sense that um, there's no explicit requirement. Like if you look at, say, Delaware corporate charters, where most of the big corporations are <clears throat> are incorporated. Um, but there's been a century of case law that's kind of entrenched this principle. Um, and so the... You know, law is not just a matter of what the what the charter says, but how case law has been interpreted. And um, so we have seen this ever since there was a famous uh, Ford Motor case um, about 100 years ago, which kind of set us on this path. But then again, in just the last 20 or 30 years, um, it's become sort of considered the de facto standard of operation in um, uh, in big companies. So that even though it's not actually in the charter, um, it is it is something that does have the power of law because uh, shareholder lawsuits have been won on this basis. And so quite appropriately, a CEO is going to be afraid if they don't um, act according to that because their job really would be at stake. So I do think that um, the only way to change it is to actually put a change in the actual law um, essentially saying to corporations, you have to be charted according to these three explicit bottom lines. Um, and that, I think, would 
would lead very would lead automatically to a shift in priorities. And you know where I'm actually amazingly hopeful when I wrote this article just um, a couple of months ago. It's called yeah, Five Ways to Curb the Power of Corporations and Billionaires. Um, I wrote in this article, you know, these ideas are so radical that even though they don't actually change the underlying system, they're so different from what's accepted that, you know, no mainstream politician would touch them with a barge pole. And yet, to my delight, and just last week, Elizabeth Warren, who is a, um, a possible contender for the presidential nomination for the Democratic Party for the 2020 elections actually came out with a bill um, aimed uh, a sort of along the lines of what I wrote about in this article. It's called the Accountable Capitalism Act. And it basically says that if corporations want to be viewed as persons, um, they actually have to not be psychopaths. They actually have to have um, moral values and they need to um, look at getting that uh, they can actually get their charter rev revoked if they acted um, yeah, essentially um, immorally or irresponsibly. Um, so she's actually um, moving on the same principles as what my article is talking about. And here's a politician who stands a, a real possibility of being our um, the next president of the United States. So that gives me some hope that some of these ideas may turn out to be mainstream quicker than we think well yes it's a very optimistic perspective um, and great to see it being discussed in that way just one last question then on the investor front um how much progress do you think is being made there's a lot of momentum in various different uh organizations in terms of responsible investment esg there's talk now of the uh eu i think has been for some time looking at redefining the fiduciary duty of investors to include esg you've had some you know major signatories uh of, of different kinds of investors and so forth uh, how real do you think this change is? Are they just shuffling things around and on the, uh, you know, or, 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 or do you see a deeper, more fundamental change? That, that is a great question. I, I think both of those things are true. I do think there is a shift in the climate so that, um, I mean, I didn't mean that as a pun, but obviously because of the of climate breakdown, there is a shift in the climate of thought around this. And most uh, responsible people around the world, and even people very, who are very wealthy, who made their money out of the system of the last few decades, realize that something has to change. So I, I do see some hope there. But at the same time, I also see a lot of greenwashing or if to sort of change metaphors, kind of shifting deck chairs on the Titanic, if you will. And I think that one of the reasons for this is because people are still not ready to come to terms with the fundamental shifts that are needed if we are to avoid this breakdown. That it's not just a matter of more investment in renewables. It's not just a matter of companies um, you know, paying more attention to social responsibility and all this kind of stuff. It's the very structures of our economy and the very structures in which we, um, we live our lives have to shift if we're going to avoid uh, a real breakdown. Um, and people aren't yet willing to look at that. And that's where I see um, some real issues that where 
And what we need to do is raise people's awareness to how much things need to shift and also to give a, a positive vision for where they can shift to. There's a, a notion out there um, that's called um, an ecological civilization, which offers a, a, a sort of a vision for a, a, a different kind of civilization than the one that this one's been built on, which essentially is sort of, you know, global capitalism, um, which is based ultimately on money as the kind of source of value, um, both for the, of cultural value as well as individual values. And an ecological civilization would be different. It would be one where the growth was in the growth and quality of life, not in how much material possessions you had. And that quality of life would come through a sense of, of sustainable living and a sense of, um, you know, of richness in community and a sense almost like of a fractal way of connecting with a lot more focus on the local level, um, but not in a kind of tribal putting up barriers kind of localism, but more like recognizing that each different community as part of a fractal, part of the um, national groups and international groups and part of the whole earth system and really optimizing for what was healthy, the d decisions that were healthy, both for the local community as well as that larger system in which the community is embedded. And there are some powerful ideas out there, some powerful visions. We, we don't lack the ideas and the ways of living and the ways of structuring an economy that are doable. What we simply lack is the political will because our politics and our mainstream media is really, um, you know, has a stranglehold by big money, billionaires and the big corporations. Yes, it's interesting you say that, um, and you're probably closer to the ground in terms of seeing these visions and so forth. But I think it is has been a criticism of uh, some environmental thinking and thinkers uh, in recent decades of of not really being able to offer a, a vision of what the future would look like or should look like or could look like and rather having uh, overly focused on the failures of the system and the problems and I think that is a really important question and I, I wonder whether clear visions and, and, and ideas that, that are really in debate and people are thinking about um, which I presumably is a necessary prerequisite for these kind of changes but I, it's uh, as you say tremendously important to have this vision um something that you know and and and, and different visions as well that would out of this will emerge you know uh, hopefully some, some something new as you say what's next for you jeremy um well <clears throat> i guess uh, speaking of vision uh, the the book that i'm working on currently is one that looks at the deeper layers of um of understanding a, a way of finding meaning in life that would lead to that more like sustainable uh, way of flourishing on the earth into the into the future so it's a book that's actually um its working title is the web of meaning and integrating uh, science and traditional wisdom to find our place in the universe. And what it's really about is, if my last book, The Patterning Instinct, recognized how our underlying worldview right now has led to these imbalances, it looks at how we can actually form a, um, a foundations for a worldview that is based on very rigorous modern um, scientific thinking in uh, system science, in evolutionary biology, in cognitive science, and how that actually uh, looks at the same underlying meaning 
of, uh, of an integrated worldview that early wisdom traditions looked at. We find that in um, traditional Chinese thoughts and Taoism and Buddhism and in indigenous wisdom. So it's offering a, um, a kind of an integrated way of making sense of things rather than splitting between um, that sort of spiritual stuff and modern science or splitting between um, you know, modern Western thought and traditional thought. It actually looks at how an, an integrated way of understanding our place in the universe can be spiritually meaningful and uh, politically um, lead to uh, a more uh, a more sort of flourishing place of uh, connectivity and an economic system that can allow us to actually live on the earth into the into the distant future. Well, that's a fantastic vision, Jeremy, and I wish you the very best of success with that. And thank you so much for a fantastic interview here today. Yeah, well, thanks. It's been great talking with you, Fergal. I appreciate um, all, all the great work you do in bringing these issues to light. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.